0: So my little dream is, is to, to try to create a curriculum that would even compete with the code.org. And so, uh, so maybe parents or administrators would opt for, for our curriculum, which again, emphasizes those science and math uh, learning objectives that they're not going to get if they, if they just do a, a CS only approach.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink and redesign our educational system. Welcome to Learning Unboxed. This is your host Annalise Corbin and I'm very excited today um, as always to welcome two guests Uh, so that we can talk about uh, something called STEM coding. I am very pleased to introduce to all of you uh, Chris Orban, who is an assistant professor of physics at Ohio State University, specializing in a very complex stuff called computational physics and computer science education. And we're really thrilled to have him here to talk about um, his work and his program and experiences in the sort of K-12 sector as it relates to moving kids. Um, up the STEM pipeline. Joining uh, Chris is Rochelle Teeling-Smith, who is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Mount Union in Ohio. Uh, Turns out Dr. Uh, Teeling-Smith was at one time in one of uh, uh, Dr. Orban's courses uh, along the way. So we may have a chance to talk about that. And together, they're going to talk with us about the project uh, STEM coding they've been working on. So welcome to both of you.
0: Happy to be here. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. So I want to start, Chris, with you and just give us the 100,000-foot overview, first and foremost, about the STEM coding project. What is it and where did it come from? You're the originator, as I understand it. So give us a little bit of the background piece so that we can then jump into the nuts and bolts for folks who are contemplating similar paths.
0: Sure. There, there's, there's kind of my motivations in, in starting the STEM coding project and then sort, there's sort of the, the wider needs. Uh, it really started, it started not necessarily intending to go towards the high school route, but I, I had a number of undergraduate students who wanted to do research with me, uh, computational physics research, laser physics research, uh, computational astrophysics research. And I would say, well, great. Uh, what's your programming skills? And I would just meet student after student who you know, got 4.0s from high school and no one had ever showed them how to use a computer to solve a, a physics or a math problem before. And finally, I got so fed up with it, I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to create activities that sort of gently introduce students on how to use a computer to solve those kinds of problems. And that initial effort kind of snowballed eventually into the STEM coding project.
1: And so as you sort of step back and think about the disconnect then between sort of a high school, a traditional high school experience and the lack of skill and knowledge as it relates to applying in a lab setting. And that was definitely my own experience in my field. Um, That was the origin of past in many ways, is that we saw that same kind of disconnect, different field, same problem, universal issue that I hear faculty around the globe talking about some of these fundamental disconnects. In this case, uh, in the computer science uh, and basic programming skills. So, Rochelle, how how do you get involved in all of this? What does that look like for you?
2: So, I mean, I can start out by echoing uh, what you were just saying. I think I was also, I was that student mm-hmm. who made it all the way through. I actually made it to graduate school before somebody asked me to do any sort of a computational project. And I was a little, you know, dazed and confused. Um, and so um, I was in that same position of not having had this sort of foundational piece of my education and i was in you know this is talking about having a bachelor of science in physics at this point in time um so it was kind of just missing from the curriculum in 2015 after i graduated i started teaching at marion technical college which that shares a campus with osu marion and that's where chris and i that's where our paths crossed again and so i was teaching these introductory physics courses you know physics 101 102 that type of content and uh I had some conversations with Chris and he was telling me about these these modules that he had developed for his own courses. And I knew, like I said, from my own personal experience and also from what I saw in the classroom, that that was a big hole that needed to be filled for my students. So I started to just um, work with Chris at that time to... Continue to develop the modules, and you know to use them in my courses. Also, you know from the not just from the perspective as a researcher, but also from the perspective as a teacher in the classroom. And that's really where we connected and how we um, started working on this project together.
1: So, so where do? step back from a, a little bit. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of the STEM coding project itself and the, the program that you're actually running, Chris, I want to talk a little bit because this comes up over and over again. States are scrambling across the nation to deal with issues tied to very generically labeled computer science and computer science education, uh, trying, trying to get at some of these very things that the two of you were talking about. Why the giant disconnect? I mean, based on your own work and your experience, and before, again, we get into the nuts and bolts of the program, I really kind of want to dig in a little bit based on your experience and your watching um, in and around the Ohio State universe. Let's put it that way, right? Broadly, Ohio as Ohio State, not the Ohio State. We'll be really clear here. Um, So why, why, why do we have this giant gap? Why this disconnect fundamentally? What do you think is happening here?
0: So, Rochelle and I were talking about this the other day because uh, it, it's interesting the trajectory that computer science education in the United States has had because th- there was actually uh, a f- some amount of coding and computer science in, uh, in classes in sort of the 80s and the 90s and the Apple IIs and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thirty 36 years old, so I'm part of the generation uh, that kind of had those things, you know, organ Trail and that mm-hmm, sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was, is that in sort of the mid to the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this push towards, no, 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 let's focus on math and reading because if the kids can't do math and they can't do reading. That's foundational for everything else. And it was around that time, I don't know the exact date, but it was, it was around that time that computer science was, uh, was the status of it changed so that it was no longer a core subject mm-hmm. uh, in K-12 in spite of the fact that it had been a core subject in K12 since the elementary and secondary education act in 1968 mm-hmm. uh and so but us and our infinite wisdom in the 2000s <laughs> decided to change that and it wasn't until probably 2014 2015 that uh, org, mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. its advocacy org is if if you don't know about it is is this organization that a lot of the the tech uh, billionaires sort of helped to found mm-hmm. to do more coding in the schools, and one of their big efforts was was lobbying and legislative, and so they managed to change that. So I, so we're back on a good trajectory now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But unlike some things with the schools, we actually were on an okay trajectory before, and it's just sort of trying to get back on track.
1: And it's perplexing. I'll be honest, because um, and I will fully admit I'm a. I- Bit older than Chris. And so I was one of those kids in the mid 80s in those first schools where it was really became foundational. Right. And I vividly, vividly remember we had the Commodore that's what we were working on in the very first computer science class that had ever come to my high school. And it was going to be an elective course. I remember that vividly. And I also remember we had to, we had a lottery in, right? Because there was going to be one, maybe two sections in a pretty big high school. Um, at the time, I was, uh, of all places, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, right? So, you know, a million miles from where we are right now. But it was, it was a big deal for it to come. The kids were really, really interested in it. I remember getting into it. I, I also at the time remember I think I might have been one of maybe two or three girls in the whole school that even put their name in the lottery. I have to admit it was almost all, all boys in the course. And then over the course of um, you know, my high school career, I think I took a computer uh programming or computer science course at least. Oh, well, I, I think I had one a year for all four years getting all the way through the old C language. You know, that's how old I, I am at this, this point. In an okay language. So there you go. Don't
0: don't just see. But for me.
1: but it's intriguing to me, right? It's intriguing to me that it disappeared the way it did. And the timing is curious because the other thing that was happening about the time that computer science is going away in schools, we also got rid of um, shop classes and we got rid of those very applied courses that, you know, is now very uncool to call home ec. You know, a lot of things like that, those foundational fundamental things went away in exchange for things like CAD labs and so there's an irony here in my mind that we took out the the the, the foundational piece that allowed you to understand what was happening and, and said cab lab right, uh, so that that went away. So that's a, it's a curious thing to me. Do you have any rational understanding either one of you of sort of how that dichotomy came to play?
0: I, I don't think either of us are experts on on the policy decisions mm-hmm. and how we got. I mean, I, I think that it was. A matter of, of people seeing kind of the test scores uh, declining. I mean, the the '90s uh, was a time of of decline in the public schools mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons that neither Rochelle and I are experts on. But uh, so I think it was probably it was probably seeing that decline and wanting to do something about it uh, was was maybe the motives behind it. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is that a lot of the movers and shakers now in the computer science education world. Are the kind of folks uh, like you and me that had did have some mm-hmm. computer mm-hmm. science in when they were in elementary school, and it it's a matter of sort of putting that back where it belongs. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it's it's a, it's intriguing, in and the students love it broadly. We get all kinds of calls um, at past foundation for a variety of different program opportunities, um, which is part of why I think that um, you know the the STEM coding program in particular. And 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 I just to be clear for our listeners. So you started this as an opportunity to sort of help with your own students, your collegiate students, both of you utilizing it in that sort of category, but now you're utilizing it in the K-12 space. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. So, Rochelle, you mentioned that you you saw students utilizing those first modules that were coming out, um, that they were... Filling a gap um, for them. What do you think was the the uh, the broadest appeal for those modules at the post secondary? So for those collegiate students, what what was the need that it was filling?
2: The the with the students, I'll use my courses just kind of as a case study here to talk from. But you know the students that I'm seeing in my courses, they are at this at this point they're usually you know uh, very late teens and early twenties. And they're preparing to go... They're very career-focused. And I see a lot of students who are majoring in a field in engineering or majoring in another STEM field. Um, And so so a lot of them are very much interested in kind of that... They they do see it as a skill set that they haven't had that they think they will need in their career or that the people who will hire them one day very soon would be very interested in, in have them having some experience and knowing just how to, how to get around um, how to do some basic programming and having an, uh, sort of a, an understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. I will, and I can, I can, Think of examples with engineering students, just because they they use so many different pieces of software um, to do different types of an analysis, you know, stress analysis, etc., and um, to have an understanding of what is going on to know that they can uh, validate the results that they get out of a piece of software to trust the results, etc. And so, those students, it's nice because they do have that; they are sort of self motivated. In that sense, um, because they they really can see that it's valuable, and they think of it as something valuable for the future that they've chosen for themselves. Other students who don't have that same motivation, so there are other students in the course who say, you know, they say, "I don't see myself using this in my career." Um, They they happen to be much less excited (laughs) about participating in that aspect of the course because they don't they don't see it as um they don't see it as sort of a they don't see it the way I see it, which is very much about almost having um, a, a different type of fluency, right, and an understanding of how how things just work in our technological society, and that everybody should be equipped with some basic understanding or that sort of fluency in this sort of algorithmic or computational way of thinking. That and they're not as they're not as sold on that concept because they haven't. Uh, that's not built into the way that they have been taught. For their entire lives. Um, it's not its not inside the box. It's not what they're used to. And so some of them do struggle with that.
1: And we see that in students across a number of different um, opportunities when you think about shifting the way that they get access to applied opportunity or the, the applied component of what they're learning. Maybe that's a better way to think about it. So Chris, how does How does that need at the undergraduate level and the experience that both you and Michelle were having um, in your classes and then the success that you were having with these modules you started to create, how does that then translate and become what is at this moment, the STEM coding project and the way you're applying it into the K-12 space?
0: Sure. Uh, So... I should say, before I get too much further, that Rochelle was really key to working with uh, more teachers, particularly physics teachers, because at the time that we started collaborating, she was running uh, College Credit Plus courses through Marion Technical College. Mm-hmm. And so she she knew a heck of a lot more physics teachers than, than I did at that point. And so she really helped us to to kind of find kind of some of the early adopters to to try some of this out in their classrooms, things like that. And that's... And that those were the the stepping stones uh for us to get uh you know put one foot in front of the other and uh, as the as the project grew but in uh you know in, in around twenty sixteen, I started sharing some of the coding activities we had with the the physics teachers that that we knew and that Rochelle knew and so for example, we had this asteroids game, mm-hmm. so i'm mm-hmm. you know you're an eighties kid, so I'm not you <laughs> appreciate the asteroids game. Um, and it, the asteroid has a bunch of great physics in it. In mm-hmm. fact, the laws of physics are simplest for a rocket uh, moving in free space, thrusting and accelerating around. Um, and so it's a great opportunity to illustrate how physics and coding can go together. And so we started sharing that with physics teachers. We started getting feedback from mm-hmm. physics teachers on oh, that's great, but could you do this, could you do that? And so we built more and more activities. uh, And then we won some nice grants in 2017. to. to, And that was really the launch of the STEM Coding Project was uh, grants we won from uh, Ohio State and from the American Institute of Physics. Mm
1: And so as you... And translated this need back into these original um, courses with um, high school physics teachers. And just for our listeners, you know, in addition to the resources that are available at the website, we've talked a little bit in previous uh, episodes about the College Credit Plus and the way that that works. That's a it's an Ohio opportunity for early collegiate credit into um, the high school arena that, quite frankly, many states from around the country are looking to replicate. So we'll make sure we have links. For that as well. So, for anybody who has questions or doesn't understand exactly what Rochelle is referring to, the the work, the work specifically with teachers, Rochelle, I want to touch on that just a little bit because one of the questions that I get frequently, especially as it relates to innovative programs like this, is you know teachers can often love them on first experience, but getting them to sustain use of that is always another conversation and piece of the journey. So are teachers actively engaged in helping you create the activities, or is it the ask around a particular module or set of standards that's driving it, and then you're doing it internally? Can one of you talk a little bit about how the actual modules currently in this iteration are now being created?
0: Uh, Rochelle, maybe you can talk about the Feedback we got last summer, things like that.
2: Um, yeah, so I mean, and so you know chris Chris is the uh, the one who is, is creating the modules. The modules are his babies. Um, and so, but we're we're what we're doing is we're utilizing so last summer we well actually for the last couple summers, we've done a lot of um, online professional development for teachers. um and we've been doing this both for graduate credit and for um, uh, continuing education units, but the teachers, so we kind of have them go through the entire set of activities and then uh, we collect a lot of feedback from them at the end. And that's the, their their commentary and their thoughts about just it, everything from small details to why is the vector for force this color and why is the vector for acceleration mm-hmm. this color you know, how does that, does that match my textbook? Does that make sense to my students or to much larger, much more, I guess, broader conversations about, well, you know, should we be introducing, you know, topic A before topic B or, you know, about the order in which uh, students should be doing the modules. And so we take all that feedback from the teachers and um, Chris is the one who kind of gets in there and, you know, uh, turns the keys and, and, and makes those changes um, based on what the teachers want to see in their classroom. And also you know that's also led to various uh, a lot of different variations and versions of the same mm-hmm. activities. Mm-hmm. Um, So we've now developed where we we do an online training course that's really focused more for uh, physical science teachers. So usually we're at a middle school level or early high school level. And then we have a course that is focused on physics teachers. And we've actually separated those out and developed different activities for them based on the feedback that they've given us in um, previous online training uh, experiences.
1: Perfect. And so teachers broadly have the ability to get access to, to this program in the professional development. Talk a little bit, Chris, about, about that, because you're working right now through the grants that you're applying for and the various and sundry pieces. You're really at this point talking about some scale, right? So how what does that look like for you?
0: I don't have to tell you that uh, teacher Twitter is amazing, mm-hmm. right? So we, gosh, Rochelle, do you remember when we started Twitter? It it was it was maybe a year and a half ago or something like that. We should have mm-hmm. done that at the very beginning because mm-hmm. uh there are is, there's over a 1,000 uh, physics teachers on Twitter. There's thousands mm-hmm. of other kinds of teachers on Twitter. And uh, that's been a great way to to get in touch with people to advertise these online mm-hmm. professional development opportunities mm-hmm. that we're and you, and you
1: are very active on the teacher Twitter and the, the social media. I mean, I see your postings multiple times a day. Yeah. So it's working.
0: Good. I have a silly story about my daughter asking me if I knew everything about science <laughs> yesterday. The answer is no. Um, <laughs> So that, that's, that's definitely been one of the tools. Uh, so Rochelle and I, we regularly present at the, the CECO meetings, the Science Education mm-hmm. Council of Ohio. That's another place for mm-hmm. me, folks. And yeah, it's just kind of been a, a slow, a slow kind of effort where more, more and more people find the resources. So our YouTube channel is 4,000 mm-hmm. subscribers. Mm-hmm. So some people find us on, on YouTube. Some people find us on Twitter. Uh, other people find us through the American Association of Physics Teachers, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that in the future that uh, more people will be able to find us through, say, the Ohio uh, K-12 computer science mm-hmm. standards. So right, I, was, right. I was on the advisory board for that. Um, I, I didn't play a huge role. I don't want to overstate my my role in that. But uh, it is something I'm very excited about for the state because this fall is going to be the first uh, Term that it's actually mm-hmm. supposed to be implemented.
1: Yeah, and it, and like many other states, uh, computer science standards in within the state structure have been a point of great. Debate and to some extent contention, but at the end of the day, past and and we're we're moving forward with it. And you know, there are a variety of different resources and groups that are bringing resources um, available for teachers to get confidence and access to that. So, I want to talk a little bit about the 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 pilot program, I guess, if you will. You know, as you move this into a, into an after school setting, utilizing the students, they're they are. An active part of your feedback loop. Um, I hear the kids as they move from Metro uh, school where uh, after school program and club that you've been utilizing STEM coding in, and then those kids turn up for other things uh, across the street at the Innovation Lab. So I hear the kids chatter about the experience. So tell me a little bit about, you know, sort of utilizing and working sort of in that space with that program. One of the things that lots of our listeners um, for this this program do, you know, we're trying to figure out how, how do we do either something similar or how do I get access to programming that already exists and incorporate it into what I'm doing? So, And, and these are folks from around the world and certainly outside uh, of Ohio. So let's talk a little bit about that experience because you're utilizing the program now, even in middle school, correct?
0: Yeah, so the I'm the faculty advisor for the coding club at Metro High School, and, and Rochelle's been talking to more schools in, in her area about uh, starting coding clubs and and uh, library workshops, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And the YouTube channel is a really great resource for that because you know you yourself don't have to be the world's expert on coding to sort of right. sit them in front of the YouTube channel. I mean, I have I have a 12 year old daughter, uh, and she's not. Hugely invested in coding, but she she knows enough that she can skip towards mm-hmm. the end of the video. And, right, uh, she can skip towards the end of the video and, and kind of see what the code that's on the screen and get her code working. Mm-hmm. And the uh, many, if not most of the of the videos on the YouTube channel are these physics to video games activities. So right. we have the pong game, which right. I'm sure you yeah. appreciate.
1: Yeah,
0: asteroids game. Do you remember the lunar lander? Okay.
1: I do, yes. Yeah. Try to land a rocket on yeah, the moon without yeah.
0: crashing, things like that. We have an Angry Birds clone. Mm-hmm. And and the unique thing about it is that um if a computer science person, God love them, if they were gonna make an activity like that, uh, they would not emphasize the physics and the science behind it th- in the way that we do. They probably wouldn't show the velocity and the acceleration vectors, mm-hmm. the force vectors. And so what we're doing is we're we're using coding as a venue to reinforce. Uh, those learning objectives, those science learning objectives and math learning objectives that were already kind of supposed to be reinforcing in the schools. And that's kind of what we don't see Mm -hmm. uh, when we... So, for example, when we go to OurCode.com, so the world's most popular computer science education site, we have four activities now on Mm OurCode.com, and we're very proud of that because they are designed to reinforce science and math learning objectives. And a lot of the stuff we see there is fun and interesting Um, and Katy Perry's on it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's not necessarily a a good fit for putting this in a science or math class. Mm
1: -hmm. So, Rochelle, when you work with teachers that are utilizing the modules in a variety of of different ways, do you find that they are successfully utilizing the STEM Coding Project modules uh, to replace what they were doing before? are they still kind of doing what they always did and using this as an added component? This this is a big, huge debate in the problem and project-based instruction world. So what's been your experience as you help teachers figure out how to utilize this sort of day-to-day?
2: Well, I feel like the answer to that is, is yes and yes. I mean, because it, it's, it's always mm-hmm. kind of mixed. I think it depends on... How the individual classroom happens to be structured, um, and so you know, in in my classroom at the collegiate level, uh, you know what we have done since these are these are all Chris has designed all of these to be they're very modular, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. They're forty, it's, you know, forty five minutes to maybe an hour to complete the the whole activity, um, and that means that they fit really well into one class period, like in a high school or a middle school. You know, at the collegiate level, we have different a different structure. But I use them in um, for lab activities. So you know, what I I had done is taken out some hands-on activities and just slotted these 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 mod these programming modules directly into those spots. And I think it's really just a mixed bag. And teachers use have reported back that they use them in different ways. You know, we try not to think about it as like taking out or replacing existing content because that is a big that's a big problem for teachers because they have so many benchmarks that they have to be meeting <laughs> they have so there's so much to do and there's so much to teach and they have so little time to cram it in and so when it's viewed through that lens of like oh i have to cut something out to put this in there, it's not It's not going to work. And people will be, you know, teachers have a tendency to be really kind of turned off by that because they already have so many things on their plate that they need to accomplish with their students. But, you know, what Chris was saying about the programming activities, like really just using the coding to reinforce the concepts that you're already trying to teach in the classroom. That's really the approach that we're taking here because we're, we're really trying, you know, uh, it's not... Replacing or cutting anything out. Um, And so the idea is, you know, if you, if you say, hey, I'm gonna, you know, this week we're gonna be talking about, um, you know, position and acceleration and velocity and all those concepts, we're really using trying to build those coding activities in a way that they are constantly reinforcing those basic concepts and kind of, you know, kind of assessing them or introducing them to students in the same way that you would do in the classroom, but you're just using a different, a different through a different avenue, right? So using the the code as... Or using the programming as a different language to teach the same concepts.
1: Is it enough content to, to fill a physics course? Because I, I'll be honest with you, Rochelle, in our work, we truly advocate that you, you replace, right? You, that we're out there looking for the best stuff that's available to really help classes, schools transition from very traditional instruction to this very inquiry applied opportunity. And physics by nature is applied, right? You know, great physics teachers are really, really good at that component of it, right? And so to be able to to supplement and add, but the, the reality of it is there's an awful lot of just ho-hum physics if it's even being taught, and there's still a lot of places where it's not really fully to your point earlier, the reason you had all these students showing up to some extent right without some of these skills is because they didn't necessarily get get the the access that they needed so is there enough content yet to be to be the the curriculum or the course
0: yeah, well um. S- something uh, I've, I've thought about and something that there's actually a teacher in, in Los Angeles who, who found our stuff and just fell in love with it. He, he's actually submitting our whole curriculum uh-huh. to uh, his district in Los Angeles to see if it fulfills the requirements for computer science in the state of California. Wow. I mean, we have enough activities now that you really could do an entire course
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, based on our stuff. And th- the interesting Reason to do that is because if you look at, and this is true of Ohio,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, computer science now counts as algebra two in right. Ohio. Correct. Um, there's kind of a grumpy letter that gets sent home mm-hmm. to the parents uh-huh. saying, like, just so you know, your parent, you know, your kids haven't taken algebra two. We're going to graduate them anyway, but they might right. not be prepared right. for college. Well, you know, our attitude is to say, well, if c- computer science is counting as algebra two, you better put math in that class. Absolutely,
1: right, yeah.
0: Um, and not to throw snowballs, but if you look at the Code.org curriculum, that's not necessarily what it emphasizes. Mm-hmm. And in some states I've heard, I think this is true of Texas, I'm not totally sure. Some states, uh, computer science classes can count towards physical science and mm-hmm. things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the different states have taken a wide array of approaches of bringing computer science back again. It's, it's a fascinating uh, quandary, yeah.
0: Yeah, so my little dream is is to to try to create a curriculum that would even compete with the code.org. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so maybe parents or administrators would opt for, for our curriculum, which again, emphasizes those science and math uh, learning objectives that they're not going to get if they, if they just do a, a CS only approach.
1: Mm-hmm. And within the state of Ohio, the, the modules have all been crosswalked to the state standard application, yes or no?
0: Some of the uh, so this is just news last week. So the uh, the model curriculum in Ohio was just recently revised mm-hmm. and approved just a yep. few weeks ago. Uh, a handful of the STEM coding activities were are going to be included in that model revision mm-hmm. explicitly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Not not all of them. I, did, I, I would I for anyway not not all the we have too many activities and I made too many activities mm-hmm. after we did those community meetings uh, to to include in there. Uh, But certainly, it'll be uh, in alignment with, with, it was already in alignment with the state science Mm -hmm. standards, and and now it's going to be explicitly mentioned in in the model curriculum. Mm
1: Yeah, but crosswalking it broadly across a variety of different content areas would be sort of an added bonus. We can we can certainly have that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not a hard thing to do. So as you then think about, so you've got this teacher who is going to the state of California and saying, hey, can we use this? You know, that'll be an intriguing thing to see, um, you know, sort of as it structures out. Are you seeing the same types of requests or wants either one of you from your teachers in Ohio how, and how many teachers Rochelle would you say are currently actively engaged in using the programming and and there'll there'll be more obviously because this is being explicitly mentioned but just just you know a- anecdotally how many do you think in the state
2: well, we'll see so chris Chris might actually have a better grasp on the numbers of people who are actively using it um in terms of like the teachers that we have attending the training um like, you know a good so we have we have probably close to uh, what, what does, what's the number for the summer Chris we
0: had we had five? i think twenty five last mm-hmm. summer yeah um, and we had we'll, we'll probably have another twenty five or so or another twenty
2: five this yeah. this summer. And then we also have, you know, we do these workshops, you know, at American Association of Physics mm-hmm. Teachers, down mm-hmm. at different different um conferences and stuff like that. And we'll usually get about 24 or 25 in, in each of those as well. And so and not and not everybody, you know, goes on to use mm-hmm. the content. Um, but so it's kind of it's kind of hard to estimate unless like, Chris might have a better idea on the number than I do, but it's kind of hard to estimate exactly how many people continue to use. The activities but we're, we're, we're working with those kind of numbers at this time
1: yeah and so as folks uh, as more people want to use the programming what what are your thoughts on how and if which is fair how and if it's able to be used across other disciplines so let's say I'm the social studies teacher are there components of this that I could pull out and utilize in other places, right? You know, that's always sort of the the mark of a really amazing program is because it has so many different applications. And that that's something that happens to programs as they evolve. So the folks that are coming right now, are they all physics and math teachers? Are you starting to see folks in other disciplines kind of creep in around the edges?
0: So we had uh, a few folks at the the CECO uh, convention that, that came to our, our session. Um, I think we, spe- Rochelle, I, I can't remember, do, do we specifically advertise it for the, the biology and math folks? Yeah. So we,
2: yeah, we had, we had a biology mm-hmm.
0: session. Yeah. And so, uh, kind of, our strategy as we expand is that, uh, you know, so for one, math is very much on the top mm-hmm. of my mind because mm-hmm. uh, there's so much opportunities there. And again, there's this issue with computer science taking place of Algebra 2. And so as I try to decide what's worth spending our time on for math, a lot of the times I'm trying to find activities for math that have sort of a biology mm-hmm. or environmental mm-hmm. science uh, component to it. So one of, one of my favorite activities is our Earth day coding activity, mm-hmm. where we have sort of, we take a cosine function to, to model the average temperature through the, through the course of the year, and then we sort of shift that function by a small amount to approximate climate change. So in Columbus, uh, apparently the climate is warm by about two and a half mm-hmm. degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which, you know, if you set your home air conditioning unit two and a half degrees Fahrenheit higher, maybe you'd notice it. Maybe my wife noticed it and I wouldn't, <laughs> but, uh, but you might not notice that subtle of a change. And so uh, the question in my mind was, well, what effect does that have on the number of sub-32 Fahrenheit days, the number, you know, the number of days we have frost? And it turns out to be something like two weeks.
1: Wow that's yeah. substantial.
0: Yeah, 26 days is actually what we wow. we came out came up yeah, it's not 2 weeks it's 4 weeks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and so you can do that that calculation with the code and so it's sort of a math activity mm-hmm. but it's also kind mm-hmm. of environmental science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can rattle off Three or four other yeah. ideas that are kind of in that same spirit.
1: Well, so here's my prediction for you guys, because the, the reality is, and, and for for folks listening, please take a few minutes. Even if you're not interested specifically in math and science, or even if you're elementary teacher, I really, really do encourage you to go and take a look um, at that program, um, the YouTube stuff. Quite frankly, is awesome. It's it, it's it's fun to watch. You you kind of get a little bit absorbed in it. Whether you're really truly. At, at the push of the play button, you wanted to go there or not. It does actually suck you in, and so I'll give you guys kudos for that because that's kind of an awesome thing. And my prediction is that as you you build more and people get more comfortable, that you will find other content folks looking to find very meaningful, tangible ways to incorporate not just the lessons but the the way of thinking that is sort of instilled. Because that's the other thing that happens is we didn't spend any time really today talking about it, but going through the modules really does help foster that, that very high-level computational cognitive thinking and problem-solving um, skills that we collectively are trying to have more and more students exposed to, and certainly earlier on. And so I suspect that as you have more folks exposed to the program, you are going to have more requests for folks coming sort of outside of what you originally thought you would see, that that's just my prediction on what's going to happen with it, because you guys have done a really wonderful job with that one of the one of the questions that we get or we want to talk about um all the time through this programming is sort of what what is your your, your your high lob, right? You know, um, as we sort of wrap here in our conversation today and folks are sitting there thinking about what they've heard. I'm in a community, you know, in the middle of Utah. I'm in a community, you know, in Maine. I really, really love what I'm hearing and I want to either try this for myself or get access to it. Uh, what, what do I need to know before I start down this journey um, with you or with other organizations that are doing similar types of things? So, Rochelle, I want to start start with you. What, what's your big lob to teachers sitting back... Listening to this, saying, "Hey, I think I want to go on this journey."
2: Well, I would tell them to do it, <laughs> so because I think a, a lot of the a lot of the conversations that I've had with teachers, both with those who are specifically training to kind of use these in their classroom, also with teachers that I've had conversations with in other in other settings, with different contexts. Um, so, Chris and I attended this computational thinking workshop shop in DC that was kind of bringing people together to really talk about. Um, how that's evolving in education across the country. But, but what teachers are telling me is that there's just there's this big intimidation barrier. And it stems, it comes back from the same thing. You, know, um, you talked about how, so Chris talked about how, how he had some coding experience when he was in school. And then you had some as well saying that you were slightly older than him. Well, I'm slightly younger than Chris. And I fell into that hole where there was none. Mm-hmm. I never had a single computer programming course offered to me at all at any point in time, K through 12. And a lot of other teachers are in that same spot. And so it's all, you know, they kind of when you're asking teachers to look at this this new thing that they need to bring into their classroom, it can be really overwhelming. It's almost like saying, I need you to teach your same lesson, but I really need you to teach it in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And they're saying I'm not fluent in Chinese. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't do that. That's too much. But I think I would encourage teachers that even if they kind of have that hesitancy, they're kind of are feeling intimidated or overwhelmed to know that it's really it's so much easier than it looks and it really is. And I can say that pretty confidently because I kind of hopped in at this level much later. I wasn't trained to do this, and it's really a very natural thing to pick up it really is. So the modules are designed. you know I'm using ours as an example, but this is more broadly across the board. You know we're the modules are really easy. To use, they designed for beginners, and you would you'd be surprised to find that the type of thinking that you need to kind of complete these activities is it's actually very natural for us. Um, and you know, my students find this, and you know, Chris has reported back from his students finding this, and teachers tell us their students say they're like, "Oh wow, that was actually not only was it fun, but it was really easy." It turned it turned out that this you don't have to be afraid and say, "Well, I'm not a programmer." It's actually really it's really fun and easy for everybody. To do, and also to know that there are a lot of opportunities to get training, and then you know we're always here for continued support for all of our teachers. If you have questions or concerns, and then I think the YouTube videos are a phenomenal resource. Um, that that actually is one of my absolute favorite aspects of this project, or all of the videos that um, Chris and his students and some of my mm-hmm. students have gone through and recorded these videos because. You're never alone. You're never by yourself. You always have some resource right there that can say, "Okay, I'm stuck on this. How do I get around whatever bug I'm something I'm missing in my code? I you know I have something out of place. It's not working, and there's always a resource there to kind of help you get past that. And then you're not going to run into that same bug a second time. So uh, it's definitely I would encourage cheaper te- teachers to jump in. And just kind of go for it. And don't don't be nervous that you don't have the experience doing it because you're going to find that it's very natural and it's a fun thing to do in your classroom. Thank you. That's very,
1: very helpful because uh, folks are always just kind of, should I, should I, should I? So Chris, should I?
0: Yeah. So one of the things that... Uh, if you don't want me answering the question for an administrator, because <laughs> Rochelle did a great job for the teachers. Absolutely. And one of the realities that we have to deal with, and one of the realities that Code.org is doing a great job with, actually, is is the fact that only something like 35-37% of Ohio high schools have a computer science course. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we are just talking with Metro. Metro lost their computer science teacher to trying to figure out what to do next yep. year. And, uh, and so, as an administrator, as a principal, what are you going to do? Well... Uh, you can compete for that handful of people that can teach it. I mean in fact, Ohio State University does not have a program Correct. to train uh, computer science right, teachers right and so you can try to do the let's let's have a standalone computer science class route, or you can empower your existing math and science teachers uh, and reach that remaining you know sixty five percent of schools and so what we're kind of trying to do is we're trying to bring computer science in through the back door. Because not all students have a front door. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no. And what, what the listeners couldn't see was me cheering Chris on because that is exactly how we think about it at PAST as well. Is that This is an opportunity to, to take really awesome, amazing teachers that are out there, give them a new or an additional skill, let them infuse it across the curriculum, give it a real solid context in the things that students are already learning and teachers are already teaching and letting them just run. Uh, True being facilitators of learning. So I'm thrilled to hear you say that because um, that's exactly what I would say as well. So thank you very much to both of you for taking time out of your day and joining us. And for our listeners, uh, there will be resources posted on the website. Um, you can also uh, get a lot of information at stemcoding.org. Is it .org or dot.
0: Just go to YouTube and search for STEM code.
1: Absolutely. And, and that's the, a
0: sticker for you. Oh, that's know, a
1: sticker for me. I have yeah. stickers. Thank you so much. And so, again, I will emphasize the, the YouTube videos are absolutely fabulous. Go there. If you, you want more information, uh, we will provide contact information for both Chris and Rochelle uh, as part of the resources. I encourage you to reach out. Um, if you're a school and you want to bring this, um, I would encourage you as an administrator to, to ask the question. Um, Um, to these guys, can you come? And what would that look like? And to to really um, spread the good word and the good work, um, not just in Ohio, but around the country. So thank you to you both for your time and dedication. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Yes, and thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back and lean in to reimagine education.